Thank you, Wayne, for reading all of those verses. As you can see, we have quite a bit to cover this morning. Uh, For all those gathering online, welcome. My name is Nick Swan. I'm the associate pastor here at Grace. We're going to be continuing our series entitled God's Big Picture. It's been a series that is designed to give us a flyover of all of the scriptures from beginning to end, from Genesis to Revelation. And the title of this message is God's Big Picture, the Present and Proclaimed Kingdom. The Present and Proclaimed Kingdom. Let me pray before we begin. Father, as we hear from your word about your son, who he is, what he's done, what he's done for us, I pray that Christ would be glorified this morning. May your spirit make the beauty of Christ evident to us. Help us to see even one facet of his beauty and his glory and his goodness with greater clarity that we might worship him and adore him all the more. I ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, Growing up, uh, my dad was a fireman, but like many firemen, he worked a second job on his days off. This is pretty typical. And what my dad did was he worked with glass, particularly beveled glass and stained glass windows. Each of the three sons at various times worked for D.E. Swan and Sons Art Glass Beveling, and we took, time, took turns working in the workshop with my dad, which was in our garage. And for the most part, we would hand bevel the glass, and then we would send them off to different companies who would assemble them and put them in decorative doors and windows at offices or homes or churches. But occasionally, my dad would have some repair work sent to him, and I would have the opportunity to see what, was, what it took to put together a large stained glass window. So stained glass windows, they are assembled on a large table, and you take a piece of paper that has the pattern of the entirety of the glass, and it will show you all the different shapes of the glass, all the different colors. It's almost like a paint by number, but with glass. And then you begin to take all these various pieces of glass or different colors, different opacities, all these different things, and you place them on there, and you fit it together like a puzzle. And when it's on this piece of paper, you begin to see the image that it is forming. Next, you take flexible pieces of lead that have grooves on either side. So if you're a woodworker, a tongue and groove. And you take the piece of glass and you put the lead around it. And then you put the next piece in. Then you put the lead around it. You put the next piece in and the lead around it. Until eventually you have this large square or rectangle and you put a frame around it. And now you have a stained glass window that is beginning to look like a piece of art. You can see all the shapes, and you can see all the colors come together, and they begin to form an image. But while it lays on the table, it remains somewhat dull. It's 2D. Its it's image is lifeless, if you will. All of the colors and shapes are there, but the fullness of the true beauty is yet to be revealed. What every stained glass window needs in order to pop with beauty is light. The moment you install a stained glass window and the light of the sun comes pouring through it, all of the beauty and all of the depth that has been there suddenly pops. It comes to life. All that was there in only shapes and shadows now comes alive as a cohesive whole. All that was previously present but veiled in darkness can now be seen. Our study of God's big picture thus far has been the slow, steady, assembling of the stained glass window of Scripture. 
As we've slowly assembled it, the picture of God's plan of redemption has been taking shape one piece at a time. We've been putting together this picture. But it has remained, in some ways, it has remained all, it's all 2D, it's flat. All the pieces of the story of redemption, they're present. You can see their shape, you can see their outline, but they've yet to pop with their full beauty and glory. Today is the moment when we will begin to allow these shapes and shadows to be backlit so that we can finally see how the Old Testament promises all fit together and how all of them come together and point to Christ. When the light of the Holy Spirit shines through the stained glass window of the Old Testament, suddenly we are going to begin to see all that Christ is in his beauty and depth. Last week we learned of the role of kings and prophets, and we left the people of Israel in a less than ideal circumstance, if you can remember. After the exile, the people had returned to the land, but the kingdom never attained its former glory, the the glory it had under its greatest king, King Solomon. They were a diminished people. They were waiting for a king, a Messiah, who would bring them a new covenant, who would finally rule over them in righteousness, who would obey the law, a king who would finally crush the head of the serpent they'd been waiting for since Genesis 3.15. A king who would free them from the oppression of their enemies. A king who would bring to fruition all of the promises that had been made throughout the Old Testament to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, and David. A king who would be their representative and who would finally lead them into the blessings of all of the promises that God had made. And today we get to see this promised king and we get a glimpse of his promised kingdom. Now, it is an impossible task to tie together all of the threads of the Old Testament into Christ in a single sermon. It's impossible. In fact, it takes a lifetime of study and worship to begin to see just how glorious Christ is. To see things like the fact that Jesus is the second and better Adam come to represent his people, to do what Adam failed to do. To see how Jesus fulfills the types set forth in the people of Israel, the exodus, the wilderness wanderings, even the exile. All of these types and and many more, they come together in Christ. But for today, we are going to hit a few high-level connections that will help us to inform and to see just how glorious Christ is and how he fulfills all the promises of the Old Testament. It's going to help us to understand who Christ is, but also to understand the Old Testament in light of him. So as best I can, I'm going to hold up the stained glass window of the Old Testament. It's my prayer, it's been my prayer this week, that the light of the Holy Spirit would begin to shine through that. And that each of us would see Christ with a new facet, a new beauty that we have not seen him before. So that we might worship him all the more. So let's dive in. Point number one is heir of the promises. Heir, H-E-I-R of the promises. So since we're going to be jumping around a bit this morning, as you can tell by our scriptural reading, I I put all of the various passages in your bulletin so you don't have to flip feverishly from Matthew to Hebrews, etc. And we're going to begin by looking at Matthew 1, 1 and 1, 17. Look with me there. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation of Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. In these verses, Matthew connects Jesus to all that has come before. 
Matthew's making clear that Jesus isn't something new. Jesus didn't come on the scene and, and, and obliterate all that had come before. He's a continuation and a fulfillment of all that has come before in the scriptures. The story of redemption has been unfolding since Genesis 3, and Jesus is the heir of every single one of those promises given to God's people in the Old Testament. He's the heir of Abraham, to whom God made this promise that he would make him a great people, a nation, and he would put him in the land and he would bless him. He's the heir of David. He's the, of the line of kings. He is the recipient of the promise that one day there would be a king, a son of God, who would sit upon the throne and rule and reign upon that throne in righteousness forever. And in verse 15, Matthew also connects Jesus, not just to the promises made to Abraham and David, but to the need for a savior that can lead the people of God out of exile. This is why Matthew includes 117 and he mentions the deportation to Babylon. Although the people are back in the land, they're functionally still in exile. The Greeks conquered him, and then the Romans conquered him. And when Jesus comes, they are under the oppression of the Roman Empire. They needed a Messiah, a king, who would succeed where all the prior kings and leaders had failed and that would lead them into the promises of the kingdom. The promises had been made, but they had yet to be fulfilled. But when Jesus, the Messiah, this promised king, he did finally come, he wasn't what they expected when Jesus finally came, he was far more powerful than they had hoped. And the salvation that he brought was much bigger in scope than they ever imagined, including the entire world, all Jews and Gentiles. But the manner in which he came to do these things, it, it wasn't as a conquering hero. He didn't come in and defeat Rome. It was as a suffering servant who came to lay down his life and to give his life as a ransom for many. One way to understand how Jesus, the heir of the promises, accomplished all of these things is to see how he fulfills all of the offices of the Old Testament. The offices of the Old Testament are prophet, priest, and king. Think of them as the three branches of government. And so if we're seeing Jesus as the heir of the promise, and that's one great tapestry, three of the main threads that will help us understand this tapestry of redemption are the offices of prophet, priest, and king. Which brings us to point number two, Jesus, the true prophet, true priest, and true king. Jesus, the true prophet, priest, and king. In Christ, all of these Old Testament offices, there were three separate beings or three separate people, they all come together in one person. Christ is the true prophet. He's not just a human being who's speaking on behalf of God. He is God and he speaks to his people as God. He's also the one true priest, our great high priest, who offers himself once for all for the sins of his people. And Jesus is the one true king who embodies the law. He rules over his people in righteousness. He also defeats all of their enemies and subdues their enemies, the devil, sin, and death. So let's take a look at each of these offices one at a time. We're going to start with Jesus, the true prophet. Look with me at Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but... In these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. 
He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Throughout redemptive history, God sent human prophets to speak to his people on his behalf. In these prophets, they spoke words of hope and promise. They also spoke words of warning and judgment. They called called God's people to repent and return to God and experience his forgiveness and his blessing. But with the arrival of Jesus, he spoke through his son. And by his son, because his son is fully divine, the heir of all things, the creator of the world, who sustains all things by the word of his power, he is God and speaks as God. He is God in the flesh. And when he speaks to us through his word, he speaks with the authority and clarity of God himself. As a good shepherd, he continues to speak to us. The prophet speaks, Jesus Christ, the great prophet, speaks to us. And he calls us, his people, to to come to him, to repent, to believe, to receive comfort, to receive blessing, to receive salvation. He calls us to heed his voice, to listen to him, and to obey him. And when we wander like a good shepherd... He hooks us and he brings us back into the pathway of obedience and life. Jesus is the one true prophet. The second office that Christ fulfills is the office of priest. The role of priest was to represent God's people in the presence of God in the temple. The priest mediated for the people. They went into the temple on the people's behalf into the presence of God. And they would offer sacrifices on behalf of themselves and on behalf of God's people in order to atone for their sins. Jesus' role as priest is explained a bit further in Hebrews 9, 11 through 14. Look with me there. This is a technical passage, but listen carefully. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come... Then through the greater and more perfect tent, not a tent made with hands that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Jesus is the true prophet. He is also the one true priest. Now, to fully grasp Jesus as priest, we have to consider for a moment the idea of blessing. We're God's people in God's place, under God's rule, and experiencing his blessing. Throughout this series, we've talked about God's kingdom in those terms. We experience his blessing, and to be blessed is to be in the presence of God. At the end of this service, whenever I do a benediction, I pronounce the ironic or a priestly Blessing, And it says, may the Lord bless you and keep you. How? By making his face to shine upon you. May he lift up his countenance upon you and be gracious to you and give you peace. To have his face shine upon us is to be in his presence. To have his countenance lifted up gives us grace and peace and mercy. To be blessed is to have the face of God look upon us with affection, love, 
and forgiveness. Blessing is to be in the presence of God. Adam and Eve knew this blessing. They used to walk with God in the cool of the garden. But when they sinned, they were taken away from the presence of God and from the blessings of God. And the next time we see God present is in the tabernacle and eventually in the temple. God's people once again dwelt in the presence of God and knew the blessings of having their God dwell among them. But this presence had to be mediated. God is a holy God, and he can't just have anybody willy-nilly coming into his presence in sin. And so he set up an entire system. Yes, I can dwell among you, but in order to experience that blessing, they're going to have to be priests who are going to have to offer all of these sacrifices, and it's only going to be one person who gets to go into the Holy of Holies one time per year on behalf of the people. That's how the Old Testament people related to the presence of God. But when Christ appeared... He transcended and fulfilled all that the temple and all that the sacrifices pointed to. What was present in shadow has now been brought to life through Christ. Jesus became the tabernacle and the temple. John 1, he came to tabernacle among us. God is now present in the flesh. We no longer need a temple. He is the temple. He is the tabernacle. Jesus then became our great high priest. He represented us before God the Father. And when he approached God the Father, he didn't do so in an earthly tent. He went into the presence of God in heaven to offer sacrifices on our behalf. And he didn't offer the blood of goats and rams that were inefficient or ineffectual in atoning for sin. He offered himself once for all as a perfect sacrifice on behalf of our sins. And and through that, accomplishing an eternal redemption. He didn't do this over and over. It was once for all in the presence of God. Jesus, our great high priest, he became our perfect, spotless Lamb of God who offered himself on our behalf once and for all so that you and I might be purified from our sins and freed to know the blessings of dwelling in the presence of God. And Christ did this as one of us. He did it as God in human flesh. Look with me at Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. Since then, we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens to offer this atonement, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need." Because Jesus is one of us, conceived of the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary. He is God in the flesh, fully God and fully man. He knows what it is to be us. And as our great high priest, he represents us. He can empathize with us. He knows what it is to be tempted in every way and yet without sin. Therefore, we have a priest not only who can offer this once-for-all sacrifice, we have one who knows what it is like to be us, to empathize with us and to even now pray and intercede for us. Jesus is the true prophet, the true priest. And lastly, he is the true king. Remember from last week, as the king goes, so goes the people. In Christ, we finally have the king that we long for and that we need. He is our servant king who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. We have a king who humbled himself who came down from his throne in heaven, 
who took on flesh and who walked among us, a king who humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. And in so doing, he defeated sin and all of our enemies. Look with me at Colossians 2, 13 through 15. This is what our king has done. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Christ, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This God set aside, nailing it to the cross. God disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. Our king nailed our debts to the cross and he conquered every enemy that we will ever face in this life. He fights for us. He defends us. He protects us. He defeats and disarms anyone that would come near us, triumphing over them, putting them to open shame. And for this, Christ our King is highly exalted. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is our true prophet, true priest, and true king. Where Adam and Abraham, Moses and David all failed, Jesus succeeded gloriously. As the king goes, so goes the people. And we are all heirs of what our king has done on our behalf. We are in him and therefore we have all that he has accomplished. Now one question these verses prompt is, are you in right relationship with this king, Jesus? Do you know Christ as your savior? Do you know him as a priest who accomplished salvation for you? All of your sins that you have ever committed have been paid for through Christ. And you may receive that forgiveness by faith. Do you realize that he is your true king and he's calling you to submit to and follow him because he has defeated all enemies. He has blazed a path that will lead you to a pathway of life and blessing. And then even now he speaks to you as a prophet, the prophet, the true prophet of God. And he calls you to come to him to receive mercy, forgiveness and eternal life. Will you come to him this morning by faith? These passages also prompt those who have believed to ask questions of ourselves. Are you listening to the word of Christ spoken to you? Christ, the true prophet. He is God and he speaks as God and he still speaks to us. Are you listening to him? Are you trusting in his atonement? Once for all, When Jesus on the cross said, it is finished, he meant it. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter the sins you've committed in your past or even in this week. He knows what you have done. He loves you and he gave himself for you. Once for all, a spotless sacrifice in the heavenly places for you. You're forgiven. You no longer need to walk in shame and condemnation. He is also your true king. He calls you to follow him, to submit to him, to obey him, and trust that where he is leading is good. Jesus is the heir of all the promises, the one true prophet, priest, and king. Which brings us to our final point, very briefly, very briefly. 
Proclaiming Jesus' kingdom. Proclaiming Jesus' kingdom. So Matthew begins with Abraham, David, and Jesus. The story up until Jesus. And he then tells the story of Jesus' present kingdom. The whole story of what Jesus came to do and what he accomplished. He then ends with Jesus, the victorious king, sending out all of his people to tell others about this kingdom. To proclaim the kingdom of God. And it's to this proclaiming kingdom that we now turn. And it's this proclaiming kingdom in which we now live. Look with me at Matthew 28, 18 to 20. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that Christ has commanded. And behold, I will be with you always to the end of the age. We, the church, are God's people. We are redeemed by Christ. And we're empowered by God's spirit and his presence to proclaim this good news to the world around us. And as we do so, God will continue to gather people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. We are his people and we also know his blessing. We know the blessing through the presence of his Holy Spirit, which he has poured out upon us, that lives among us and also dwells within us. Jesus also inaugurated the new covenant where the spirit of God rules. So we have blessing and rule. The law of God rules in our hearts as we more and more are transformed into the image of Christ as we worship him. We are God's people. We are living under God's rule and experiencing his blessing. But as his people, we're living under his rule and blessing. We are doing so as a, as a people who are not yet in our place. We are a people in transit. We're making our way to our promised land, the new heavens and the new earth. We're like the people of the Old Testament in the wilderness. Jesus has come. He's redeemed us. And we're now making our way to the promised land. But we are not yet in that promised land. And so we live in the tension of the now. Has Jesus come? Is he the king? Is his kingdom here? Absolutely. Has it come in its fullness? No, not yet. And so you and I are his people living under his rule and blessing. And the place that we are now living in is in transit. We are sojourners. We are exiles making our way to the promised land. And until we reach that land of promise, we worship We allow the light of the Holy Spirit to illuminate the stained glass beauty of Jesus Christ. And as we see Christ in all of his glory, we proclaim him. We can't help but proclaim him to the world around us. Can you see our king? Can you see our savior? Jesus is glorious. Come, follow him. We proclaim this to the world. And we do all of this while we wait. We wait in the hope of the life to come. When Christ will return and bring all of the fullness of his kingdom to us. When our faith will finally be sight. And it's to that life to come that we will turn next week with our final message in this series. Please join me as I pray for us. Father, it is an impossible task even in a lifetime, to see how beautiful and good and glorious Christ is and all of the myriad ways in which he has fulfilled all that has come before him. 
So, Father, I ask by your spirit that there would be one way in which each person here this morning sees Christ more clearly, loves him, and worships him. Father, I also pray for those whom you are calling this morning to follow you, that they would humble themselves, that they would come, and that they would know life. I ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.